The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Thankful for your abundant grace that saved us and made us your people and brought us to this time, this place, and put before us the truths that are here in this passage this morning for our encouragement, for our upbuilding, and for your honor in our midst. Thank you. Now we ask you to do still more that you would take this word that's here and this moment that's, that has arrived and that you would run through it in power to press this word into our hearts to change us. To build up your church, to draw people in, to honor your name. Please do that. We're going to speak in English and listen in English this morning and in some way we can understand, but unless you apply it to us, we won't really get it. So please, Lord, Press upon us and show us yourself in glory. Build your church and honor your name. That's what we pray for and we pray in your name, trusting you to do it. Amen. Nothing breeds confidence like competence. Somebody told me that once while trying to motivate me to practice and become competent. <laughs> but it's true. No one's confidence grows quite like it does when you feel like, I can do it. I know how. I'm able. I have done it before. I got this. Competence does indeed build confidence. And it works across the board in, in classroom tests and in academic contests and in job interviews. When you know you can, you're confident. And of course, the opposite is true as well. When you know full well you can't, when you know you are incompetent and you are in way over your head, that does not produce confidence, only fear. And lots of fear if there's a lot on the line. We shrink back from situations like that because we know we're going to fail. We are in, we are, if we are incompetent, if we are in over our heads, then there is only great fear, unless you also have a great, big, powerful, wise, omnicompetent helper who will show up at your side and carry you through. In that case... No worries. And that's what connects us to our passage this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're very near the end of this book here this morning, and we're very near the end of Paul's life. He knows that the end is imminent. He's looking at his death that's coming on, and he's described himself actually as already being in the middle of dying, like a drink offering in the process of being poured out. He's at the end of the race. But while at the end still, he's, he's, he's leaning forward so as to finish well. This is what we saw last week. Paul continues to hold fast to the Lord in love 
And he continues to lean into gospel ministry, the, the, the work that God has called him to. All of that done in a proper context of eternity. He, he sees, he looks ahead and he sees the coming crown of righteousness that will be his. And he sees the coming judgment against all persecutors and all opponents. That shapes how he lives here and now. That, that future vision shapes the present. And, and that, that future and present connection, it's been in the past passages and it's, it's in this, morning as, this morning's passage as well. God is present with Paul and Paul sees that and sees what's coming and it affects how he lives now. This vision of God, it controls Paul's life now. God is present to help him now and in what comes. And that's what we need to find in this passage this morning, this kind of vision of God about what's coming in the future, about what is now to help us here and now, to see him as our present help in time of need. Because where we are right now is we're facing a daunting task. We have before us an assignment that is too big for us, and a journey that is too long and arduous. We can't without him. But what this passage wants to do is show us how Paul, seeing the same sort of can't, also saw the Lord. And that vision helped him. May that come to us this morning as we work through this passage, this vision of God to help us now and in the future. That's what we're working towards this morning. May God give it to us in verses 16 to 18, a vision of the Lord. So I'm going to make two observations from this passage, but first I'm going to read verses 16 to 18. And then the two points that are going to follow are going to kind of be along the lines of the assignment and the journey. I'm going to phrase them differently, but that's kind of the two different paths we're, we're looking at this morning. So here's 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Paul writes, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Two observations, and here's the first. The Lord's presence is promised and empowering for his purposes. The Lord's presence is promised and empowering for his purposes. Verse 16, Paul recounts what happened at his first defense. That's, that's the first part of his trial here at the end of his life. He points out that no Christians at all showed up in court. As we've seen, and as we'll see in the coming verses, there are other Christians around. He knows other people. There's a whole church there in town that's, that's connected to him in some way, but they all made themselves scarce at this moment. They deserted Paul. Like was said of Demas, it's the same word. But the the tone of this is a little bit different. Demas was a leader, and Paul knows that something's gone wrong in Demas' heart, and so he has to point out, as we saw last week, point out for all to see 
Something wrong in Demas. Don't, don't follow that way. But here he almost goes out of his way to not make it an accusation, to not make it some sort of condemning statement. He, he points out, I don't want anybody to hold this against them. Yes, they all deserted me. Don't anybody count them against them. There's no, no need to worry because, because, in fact, someone else did stand at my side. The Lord. So picture the scene here. You, you, Envision this. This is, this is amazing. Paul is in court with an entirely non-sympathetic audience. Most likely the, the court setting resembles other trial scenes that we read about in the book of Acts. There's a, a contingent of very hostile, very angry enemies pressing their case. And then there's a a knot of relatively uninformed judges or rulers. And because Paul had exercised his right to be tried, his right as a Roman citizen to be tried by Caesar himself, most likely Caesar himself is present, the most powerful man in the known world. Sitting there on his seat of judgment as very angry, very hostile, very practiced and skilled men argue, oh Caesar, this prisoner goes throughout your empire attempting to persuade people to turn away from your authority and deny your right to be bowed down to and followed. And he says that his God and this man Jesus, who you, Caesar, wisely crucified as a rebel, that this God and this Jesus is in fact the one that everyone should bow down to. You included, Caesar. That's what he says. It's sedition and rebellion, clearly. Well, prisoner, what do you have to say? It's an intimidating environment, especially because Paul knows that's pretty much true. And that's pretty much what I have to say. Yes. Standing there all by himself. And then at that moment, graciously and kindly, the Lord drew near and impressed upon Paul something. He impressed upon Paul a reality that God Almighty stands right beside him and he's not all alone. Here's the second most powerful man in the known world. And beside you stands the Lord. Now God's always present, but he made that clear to him in a supernatural, spiritual sense in, in, inside of Paul by the power of the Holy Spirit. God made his presence known and seen and appreciated, and that's what strengthened him. It goes together. Not, not obviously a physical strength thing. There's some sort of a, an internal, something, something of a confidence, of a courage, of a resolve, of a rest, maybe a hope. And the, the text wants to join these two things together, the presence of the Lord and strengthening, so that we know they're joined. That's what happens when God makes himself clear to a Christian. Hope and rest and confidence so not alone. 
Now, let's step back for a second from the, the particular situation and think about this just a little more broadly. Loneliness or aloneness. It's a difficult reality that most of us face at some point in our lives in some way, and some of us face a lot. And it can be very difficult, and it can hurt. Maybe with Paul, like the situation, maybe it's because of fickle friends or, or some sort of, of waffling and unkind turning away. Maybe it's because you actually lack friends in the first place or loved ones Maybe they've died or moved on. Whatever it is that has caused a situation, isolation and loneliness being abandoned happens. And when it does, it hurts. And a Christian, though, can look at this passage and see something here that is not the main point, as I'm going to point out, but you can see something here that I think is really helpful. There's a hope here in the midst of loneliness and aloneness and desertion that can be pursued by a Christian all by yourself. The Lord is with you. You aren't ever actually all by yourself. He, this almighty God, he is near. And he sees you. And he knows what's going on in your life. And he attends to that. And he leads you. And he steps in and meets the needs of the moment for you, in you. This Lord who is now yours is near. And he himself alone is enough to satisfy the longings of our hearts. I'm not trying to say that things like Christian fellowship and, and deep interpersonal friendships are irrelevant. I've got Jesus, I don't need anybody else. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when you don't have anybody else, you have this Jesus. That's good news. It is not a hopeless situation. There is one who is present, one who can be sought and found and who can help each individual human heart to know the joy of this Lord. The psalmist wrote and meant truthfully, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When I don't have any other portion, I have this portion who is the Lord, and that is enough. Again, I am not saying... I, so it doesn't matter that there aren't any friends and it doesn't hurt. No, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there is a real hope in the presence of Jesus in each one of our lives. That's good news. That's verse 17 realization that helps Paul have verse 16 attitude of being freed from bitterness and freed from resentment when his fickle friends desert him. He has a focus on a steadfast friendship and a faithful presence, the company of the best of friends. That's good. That's real. And I think it would help us to, to, to notice that. There's a hope there. But as I said, that's, that's not really the main point here. Paul doesn't actually mean for us to notice. God drew near to me, and, and God addressed some sort of 
a sense of fear and aloneness as an end in itself. It's there, note that, but that's not the main goal. This is a presence of God and a strengthening by God towards an end goal, really, of action. There's a purpose here on God's part. The Lord gave Paul a sense, a supernatural sense of his presence so that, the text says, Paul would accurately speak the message of the gospel. Clearly. Before the Supreme Court of the Roman Empire, before Caesar himself, and therefore representatively before all the Gentile world. That's what happened, not by accident, but because God had ordained that end goal. Paul realizes all along, I'm an instrument in the hands of the Lord. He wants the message proclaimed in all the earth. He determined to use me to do that. Paul knows that. Paul's been told that. And he brought me here now for this time and this purpose. And once he committed himself to that end and committed me to be the means, then he also committed himself to supply all the other necessary means to reach this end goal. I'm an instrument. God's the one at work through me, it says, that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. Paul, all along, is banking on God's power to be at work in him to accomplish God's purposes and to protect Paul from every threat to that until the job is done. That's what Paul means by being rescued from the lion's mouth. He's not talking about literal lions. He's, he seems to be echoing Psalm 22 where lions are used there as a kind of a metaphor for life-threatening danger. He means God saved my life so that I could accomplish God's purposes of proclaiming this message for just yet a little bit longer. That's what Paul realizes in verse 17. The Lord stood by me. The Lord strengthened me for the Lord's purpose of proclaiming the gospel to everyone. That's what God did. That's who God is. And that's what we can trust him to be for us too. We can bank on that. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you can know this much about yourself. You're called to gospel ministry in some way or another. Now, unlike Paul, we haven't been told specifically. Paul was told specifically things like, you're going to be my instrument to the Gentiles. You're going to stand before Caesar and preach. He was told some specifics that we have not been told, so we don't know quite that kind of detail. But you can know this. God has in some way gifted you and placed you in a certain set of circumstances at a certain time in a certain place. That's who you are, that's where you are. And none of it's by accident. When God reached down and saved you, he did not then roll the dice to see which set of gifts you would have and where you might end up and then say, well, let's see how this plays out. 
has a plan for you and in you and through you. We may not know all that that is, but this you can know. Sometime this afternoon and this evening and then tomorrow and then again on Thursday and every day all through the week, you're going to step into a set of circumstances and you're going to bring with you what you are and what you have. And when you step in there, you are a latecomer to the situation. God is already there at work doing something and is adding you and what he's made you to be into the mix to accomplish his purposes. He's at work and he's joining you into it. And so you can know then, as I arrive, I'm stepping into something. God is already at work here. God has already undertaken something. He has some beforehand plans that he will accomplish, and he means to use me. And he cannot be thwarted. He accomplishes all of his purposes with you. He will draw near, and he will strengthen you as appropriate for whatever the situation is to give you what you need to accomplish his end goals. So then you can know, I am assured of success and I am invincible. This like suddenly turned into like self-help hour? Self-help hour? No. But work this through with me. I know I'm kind of like working down numerous logical steps here, but Take a deep breath and work this through with me. You are assured of success and invincible because God is your shield and the one doing the work according to his power and plan and timing. And his word and his work never goes out except that it accomplishes exactly what he means for it to accomplish. You're assured of success and cannot be struck down until he's finished. This is Paul's realization as he stands there before Caesar. I am assured of success, whatever God means that to be, and I am invincible until God means for me to be done. That's you too, Christian. Now, if we were to be in a different passage, we would find in other places Paul modeling something else or commanding something else. Did Paul have to open his mouth and speak? For sure. Did Paul have to summon up courage and set his mind on truth, on the things above? Yes, for sure, that's truth. And in other passages and in other contexts, we would find Paul saying, Christian, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Christian, be bold. Christian, proclaim the message. Christian, entrust yourself to the Lord. But those are other passages. What this one is about is, Christian, look what God did and does. 
He stood by me to strengthen me so that through me he'd get his message proclaimed like he planned. This is about God. This, this particular passage is emphasizing the work of God. So if you want to step one step further behind this, the Great Commission is the work of God Almighty, not you and me. And it is assured of success, and it is invincible. Because God does the work through us. But God does it, not us. Yes, we have to. But God does the work. It is the Lord's mission to spread his name into all the nations and to gather in all of his people. And he uses us, but he's the one who does it. This is meant not to exhort us to action, but it's, it's the thing that Paul sets his eyes on here and holds up in front of us, that God's the one who drew near and God's the one who strengthened so that we would be encouraged. We would be encouraged I'm not all alone. I face an impossible task, the evangelization of the nations. Impossible. Let's step back. The evangelization of my neighbor. Impossible. Yep, impossible. Except that beside you stands one who is the Lord. And seeing that, you can be encouraged and confident to lean into gospel ministry and say, do your work and use me, God Almighty. Seek his presence and sit at his feet and then lean forward into gospel ministry realizing that he is the one who does it and he always wins. He doesn't shoot a really high percentage. He's perfect in all of his ways. So this God means to draw near not just to encourage us with his presence but to encourage us to lean into what he's doing with us and through us and what he will certainly accomplish right up until he's done with you and then you're no longer invincible, then you're dead, gone home. Which is the next point. And that's good news too. This, I find, I don't know, I'm at a loss of words about this a little bit because I find this to be so helpful. Because if you ever stop and actually face the, the call of gospel ministry, it, it is real easy, real quick to say, oh my word. How? And then to begin to think about particular people Specifically, conversations. How do I, what do I say? Jesus self taught, I'll give you words. I'll take care of it. I accomplish my purposes. Lean forward into it in faith. That's the first point. We face an assignment that is daunting. We can't do it. But we have one beside us who will strengthen us to accomplish his work through us and save us from every challenge and then save us all the way to home. Second point then. The Lord will deliver us from evil ultimately by taking us to heaven. 
The Lord will deliver us from evil ultimately by taking us to heaven. It'd be easy to read the very last part of verse 17 and think that Paul's writing high. He's been strengthened. He was rescued. God saved his life. And so he's optimistic, looking forward. I'm going to be set free. It'd be easy to read that. We often think that's the case. When the power of God shows up, trouble is chased away, and it's all good. Safe and secure because he is our shield. And in a way, that is absolutely true. As long as we understand safe and secure in trouble properly. God is keenly interested in rescuing his people from trouble. In fact, he always does. Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil, because that's a prayer God means to come to and answer. And Paul affirms that in verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. That is certainty. Will and every. He will rescue Paul. He will rescue every one of his people. Every Christian can know this and trust in it and rest in it. He will rescue you, Christian, from every evil deed. That's a promise. What does it mean? It's a rescue of a sort that results in the second half of the verse. And will bring me safely to where? To heaven. To God's heavenly kingdom. We're, we're already in the kingdom now. Paul's trying to clarify, I mean heaven. So he does not mean, he did once, he saved my life, but he will not save my life always. He's going to rescue me to heaven, which I have to die to get to, by the way. That's going to happen. So the saving, the rescuing, the, the delivering that Paul has in view here includes death as its means, not the thing being rescued from He's going to use it to rescue him. So what he really means, if I can put it like this, what we really need to be rescued from is the evil in the evil deeds, not the deed itself, not, not the experience itself. It's the evil in it that's our threat. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that the execution of Paul was not itself wrong. It, it, no, it was an evil deed. It was sin. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to like, help us understand what's going on here. God is certainly willing to let us face, to encounter, to be struck by all kinds of bad things, like execution and troubles of all manner. But he's resolved to deliver us from the evil in that. And what is the evil lurking in evil deeds? What is it? Well, certainly there's something evil in that it comes from Satan. And it seeks to denigrate God, sure, his creation in some way. But at the heart of it, when the evil one conjures up or plots some sort of 
an attack against you, Christian. What's he after? He's after your faith, which is of greater worth than gold. Because without it, no one sees the Lord. He plots and schemes, conjures up, is on the prowl hunting you, seeking to destroy faith in you by any means possible. By threat, fear of physical harm or actual physical harm, Sometimes by things that we don't even usually regard as evil, we think of as blessings like financial windfall or a cush job or a wonderful new relationship. Maybe by abundance and success or maybe by pain and sorrow and despair. In all of it, what the evil one is plotting to do in you, what he seeks to do is sow into you and then water and cause to flourish some sense of, I don't need him. I think I will turn away from him. And my own way seems more profitable. And I think I can, I am capable by myself to to cause us to turn away from, to depart from, to leave. And our hearts are prone to wander. We don't need a lot of help with that. To turn it around, what he seeks to sow and cause to flourish in us is unbelief. That's the core of evil. Unbelief that turns away from the living God and goes its own way. And God's promise to you, Christian, is that he will rescue you from that every time, all the way. We are on some some sort of a, who knows how long, we are on some sort of a journey towards the end and all along our treacherous detours and pitfalls, barriers of all sorts, some of which you see, some of which you don't. There is an enemy plotting against you and you are incapable of navigating the way all by yourself. And the Lord says, I will stand by you and rescue you from all of that threat to your faith and I will assure you get home. Not because you're good and faithful, but because I am. And I cannot forsake my own. I've claimed you, I own you, and I carry you. This is a sweet thing. Do you, have any, do you have any idea? We walk around on a battlefield and we don't have any idea about how much of a threat there is. Maybe at times you encounter the waywardness of your own heart and you see your sin, you see it rising up against you, or you wonder about your ability to, to hold on to the Lord. And in fact, the good news is he's the one who holds on to you. Again, if we were in another passage, there would be statements about set your mind on things above. There would be exhortations to hold fast to the Lord. But the thing that's here is God carries you. 
Paul's at the end of his life, and he sees this as the sweetest of all possible things. I'm reaching the end of the finish line. I'm going to lean in and break the tape. The final horn is going to sound, and the good news is that me, with all of my incapabilities and all of my weaknesses and all of my sins and all of my failings, that I'm the chief of sinners, and I'm going to make it home by the goodness and grace of the Lord who will rescue me. Paul's going to step outside of the city of Rome, rise up on a little hill, lean over, and they're going to drop an axe on his neck. All along the way, he's going to be afraid. And completely confident. Because what happens at the end of that is I see the Lord because of the determination and resolve and faithfulness of this almighty friend. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Because Paul says, thank you. I wonder, is that actually what you most are concerned for? To be rescued safely through your unbelief to heaven. Truth be told, the best I can say on that is sometimes. Sometimes I check the email I get from Chase Bank, and what I most want is the credit card balance to be low. <laughs> then I'm okay. Or to get the phone call from the doctor and the test came back negative, you're fine. That's what I most wanted. Thank you for rescuing me, Lord or my kids to do X and my spouse to do Y. Thank you, Lord. Are those good things? Sure, yeah. Unless they become the blessings and temptations that cause you to tear down your barns and build bigger ones, trusting yourself, then there's actually evil laced in all those blessings. Watch out. We are people prone to wander. And the good news is we've got a Lord who isn't. Who says, I got you. I, I will carry you home. In another passage, there would be exhortations and commands about being faithful and holding tight to him. This is a passage that says, he will rescue me from every deed. That's evil. And so I will get home because of him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This displays the wonder of the God who is and who is for you and who will never leave you nor forsake you, who is always attentive to your situation and is always working to preserve in you faith. This is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. Sweet. We sometimes think about the doctrine as the perseverance of the saints. It's actually 
the preservation of the saints. Emphasizing what God does for us. And that is, if, if anything, that is a beautiful God held up before us that should incline us to lean into him in faith. It's that kind of kindness then that draws us to repentance, that draws us back to him, that rescues us from sin again and again and again, a display of this beautiful God who keeps us. He stands by us to empower us in the assignment that we have that is daunting, and he promises to carry us all the way home through the long journey in which we would otherwise fail. This is the God who is and who is for us and is awesome. This is the God of the church. This is your Savior. The only one worthy of your life. The only one who's good. He's the one we commend to each other every day. He's the one that Paul holds up in front of us and says, trust this one. Worship this one. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, seed this into us and cause this to flourish. This vision of you, the sustainer and empowerer and carrier, the rescuer and savior, Cause this kind of a vision of you to flourish in us. And from that build confident, resting action. The people who know you and trust you and walk with you. Who love you and worship you and enjoy you. Make us that kind of people. Please, Lord, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.